have a seat. You ever notice how when like Zach starts to belt it, he kind of like braces himself when he's getting ready to? Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, good morning. We have been in the book of Ephesians now for the last uh, seven weeks, and kind of as we are wrapping up this series called Beloved Community, it helps sometimes to just go back to the, the background and to know what it is that, that Paul, in the context that he was writing in, Ephesus was this major cosmopolitan, multicultural uh, economic center. It was backed with the hard power of Roman military influence and Greece with the soft power of cultural influence. It had a temple of Artemis. It was a major religious area. Judaism had a strong sense in the culture. The Egyptian religions were kind of swirling around. And as Paul is kind of finishing up this letter to the church, this community that has been rooted in the reign of Jesus, he is wanting to let them know as they are working out what it means to be that kind of community in the world and how it kind of shapes the way that they interact with each other. He kind of finishes on this ominous note that the life of faith is one in which we have to take a stand. The struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood. Prophetic words then. Prophetic words now. In this world, it's kind of you know, returning to the tribal, in-group versus out-group, you know, whose fault is it, who's to blame, this side, that side, that looks out at the cultural landscape of ideas and ideologies and looks behind those things to see human faces that we can assign blame to. We know instantly who the enemies are. It's happening all over the world, and Paul is saying, no, the enemies are not flesh and blood, not humans who are easy to blame because they're right there. You can reach out and you can touch them. But there is something else at work. And while he doesn't deny the human element that uh, flesh and blood, after all, he is sitting in a Roman prison in chain, right at the, the center of the system where those powers have taken up residence. As he closes out, he wants to kind of pull back the curtain and show that there is a whole other dimension of reality at play. I'm kind of reminded of the Marvel movie Doctor Strange. It's about this uh, brilliant but but broken uh, neurosurgeon. Uh, He's this urban elite, accomplished, sophisticated. Uh, and he loses everything, and having exhausted all of the abilities of Western medicine, he travels to Nepal and in desperation seeks help from these masters of the mystic arts. And when they offer to teach him, in his hardened skepticism, he cannot concede for a moment that there is something that he cannot learn or cannot know by reading a book, by looking under a microscope. And so he rejects the thing that he most needs in his moment of most desperation and tell him this kind of, you know, trippy magical mystery tour of the cosmos, he is shown that there are more things in heaven and in earth than are dreamt of in his philosophy. And he gets enlisted into this battle against the unseen powers that threaten the world. It's a cool movie if you haven't seen it. It's a bit trippy. 
Paul is encouraging these followers of Jesus that there is this, there's this foreground that we can see, this, this arena of, of human affairs the, where psychological and social factors are at play. Uh, there, there are things that we can observe, the, 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 the material, the, the observable, all that stuff that we get kind of in the secular West. And then as people who proclaim Jesus as green, there is this background picture of what God has accomplished in Jesus. There is this God who has created the world, spoke light and life into existence, become incarnate in Jesus to live as the new humanity, to put to death the old humanity that we might live. But then, in the biblical theological vision, in between that foreground and that background, there is this middle ground that we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about. And to be honest, it's something that I'm not particularly well versed in. And I've avoided teaching on it for a long time because, frankly, there is a lot of extra-biblical kind of weird stuff that goes into that category of spiritual warfare. There's a lot of things out there that are just not all that helpful. But also because my theological training has just kind of ignored the idea that there is a spiritual superstructure to reality. But as followers of Jesus, we have to deal, we live in this middle ground, that there are, there are factors behind and beyond what we can see, these, behind and beyond our, our quirks and our hang-ups that threaten to derail our attempts to live in community. So, we're going to dive into this passage together. Alright? You ready? If you have your Bibles, I want you to uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray. In the Spirit, on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me, that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers. We ask this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Amen. So, the devil. Andrew Delvalco, who teaches humanities at Columbia University, opens up his book, The Death of Satan, with this line. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources uh, available for coping with it. And his book is kind of this, this attempt to kind of come to grips with the general unease that many have in the, the secular kind of modern West. Uh, people like himself, Del Banco describes himself as secular, as, as liberal, sophisticated. And, and how then do we deal with these questions of evil in the world? Subtitle of his book is How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. And while signs of this evil kind of abound, he, he notes that explanations fall short. And so he goes on to write, The work of the devil is everywhere, but no one knows where to find him. We live in the most brutal century in human history, but instead of stepping forward to take the credit, he has rendered himself invisible. We certainly no longer have a conception of evil as a distributed entity with an ontological essence of its own, as what some philosophers call presence. Yet, something that feels like this force still invades our experience and we still discover in ourselves the capacity to inflict it on others. Since this is true, we have an inescapable problem. We feel something that our culture no longer gives us the vocabulary to express. He's describing kind of the, the paradox of our Western world what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame, this, this idea that we have these kind of mental boxes that we put the world in, that we, we box some things in, we box other things out, and it kind of encloses the world in which we inhabit. And in the West, since the Enlightenment, we live in a disenchanted world. That is, a world that is imminent as opposed to transcendent, a one in which we have this fundamentally materialist orientation to reality. Oh, oh, this mindset that pervades our culture is that the idea of a devil is something from the pre-scientific age. And, you know, we know better. That's the, the mantra kind of in the progressive West. And so when things go wrong, there must be a rational explanation. Things like crime and greed, like, you know, violence, racism, they all have a natural cause. There's some kind of hiccup in our evolutionary makeup. Evil is the result of, of, of failed psychology. People weren't raised right, or they had kind of these, these, you know, they weren't educated properly, or that's because of bad sociology. There are bad social factors at work. There are breakdowns in the systems and structures in which people live. If we can simply just identify and isolate those variables, then we can fix it. And don't get me wrong, I am all for fixing broken systems. But what if that's not enough? Is this time of year, 27 years ago, that one of the worst genocides in history took place right before our eyes. As over the course of 100 days, uh, Hutus murdered some 800,000 Tutsis in the nation of Rwanda. Killing started on April 7th, just four days after Easter Sunday. And far from enemies clashing with one another, this was neighbor killing neighbor. This was 
friend and family member killing friend and family member. Church members were stalking and killing people that just a few days before they had been in church proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus has overcome the powers of evil in this world. And so in his book, A Mirror to the Church, Emmanuel Katongli tries to make sense of the, the racial, the social, the historical, the, the political factors to set up this possibility where a nation, where 85% of the population are churchgoers, where how is it then that these killers could take a break from their butchery to go to church and worship and be served communion by priests who knew exactly what was going on, all the while the world was watching and did nothing to intervene. As an academic who teaches in Notre Dame, he's interested in the racialized legacy of colonialism and how that shaped the country. As a child of a Tutsi mother and a Hutu father, he's interested in how is it that identity got formed in his countrymen. And as a Catholic priest, he wants to know, how is it that the blood of tribalism became deeper than the waters of baptism? With all these questions kind of swirling around, he writes this. Well, I trust that there is something to be learned from the scholar in me who wants to tell the story of how the Rwandan genocide came to be. The contradictions we find in this story ultimately lead me to believe that there are powers at work beyond the rational progression of history. I cannot explain Rwanda without acknowledging that it has, in some sense, come under a spell. I believe that Paul is right when he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are not called to fight against bodies, but against spiritual forces that lay claim to our bodies. And of course, Rwanda is not the only story of a nation falling under a spell. When the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw Nazism come to power in Germany in the 1930s, this, this land, a uh, sophisticated modern land of, of Goethe and, and Bach and, and Dürer and Beethoven, he described it, it was like there was something in the air that was holding people's minds captive. These spiritual powers took the forms of these lies of race and, and the German Volk and the German state. And in a letter to his, his brother, he wrote asking, how is it that one can close one's eyes at the fact that the demons themselves have taken over the rule of the world? That it is the powers of darkness who have here made an awful conspiracy. And just earlier this week marked the 100-year anniversary of the massacre in Tulsa, this largely untold story of white supremacy and how it made a living hell on earth because it could not stand to see black prosperity and joy. Paul is describing this reality 
that evil is not something that's simply based on ethnic or cultural background or a, a collection of misfires chalked up to fail psychology, but there is something spiritual, that there is a background, there is an interaction between the physical and the spiritual world. And these human factors, for sure, they, they exacerbate, they, they exaggerate the innate dysfunctions, the innate pathologies, the sin and darkness in the heart, but they do not create them on their own. There's something else at work. There's a spiritual nature working, something not flesh and blood that gets into and and takes root in and influences the very flesh and blood systems and structures of the world. I I think Katongli's use of the word spell is really helpful because it names something invisible. That's what makes it more dangerous. Evil rarely looks like evil until it has accomplished its purpose and it gets its foot in the door by appearing attractive, even plausible. So the first step in confronting the power of the spell is simply to name it. Okay, so if I've lost you on this point, you know, spiritual powers, underseeing dimension of reality, operating beneath the surface of things, uh, you know, interacting in and influencing our world, I get it. Something that definitely cuts across kind of the, the way that we are, you know, raised and brought up in the Western view of the world. We're, we're smart, we're educated people. But I, I want to encourage you to just kind of suspend your skepticism for a few moments Because if you can do that, I I think the New Testament's vision of how it is that these powers and principalities operate in the world might actually be helpful for you, and it's not going to be as weird as you think. Paul uses this image of dressing for battle, that there is this kind of spiritual battle in which we are engaged. And I think for a lot of us, our our dominant view of, of what this battle might look like, you know, is shaped by World War II, right? This kind of idea of these, these two opposites, you know, and, and, and quasi-equal forces engaged in some sort of large-scale battle over land, sea, and air. At some points in the story, it looks like one side is going to win. At other points, it looks like another side is going to win. That's the image, kind of these evenly matched forces duking it out in the spiritual realm. But that's actually not really the image that the New Testament gives at all. The reality that Paul is describing here is that these powers and these these authorities, they have been defeated by Christ on the cross in the resurrection. In, In Colossians, which was written right around the same time as Ephesians, Paul writes that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. All right, so the foreground of human action, Jesus took on the old humanity in his death and rose so that a new humanity might be possible, that might not be subject to sin and death. In the background, God is victorious over sin and death. Christ has defeated it on Easter Sunday, opening up a new possibility of life for us. And in the middle ground, God is vindicated. These powers and authorities see that Jesus is king. And so what are they going to do? They've been outmatched. They've been disarmed. Language is telling. I'm, I'm going to use an analogy that I heard from Mark Sayers. Uh, all right, so we have this softball team. It's called the Good News Bears here at All Souls. That's like the most Mike St. Dennis name ever. 
And if you were to ask me, you know, how, how'd, your, how'd your last game go? And I would say, we won. You'd, you'd say, great. If I were to, you know, if you were to ask me the question, how, how did you guys do? And I would say, we made a public spectacle out of them, completely disarming them of any softball playing ability that they may have. You'd be like, I hope that's on YouTube. I want to see that. that. That's kind of the image of what Paul is getting at here. He's saying that in the resurrection, Jesus has exposed these powers for what they really are. They do not have God-like authority over the world. They have been stripped. They have been defeated. They have been emptied of their power. And so the question then is, how do they operate? Well, Paul writes by schemes. And the Greek word he uses is methodia. It means to employ crafts, to employ trickery, to employ uh, deceit. They operate by the power of lies. In his most in-depth teaching on the devil, Jesus says in John 8, uh, there, is no te- there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar. He is the father of lies. And so if these powers had been disarmed, if they had been defeated, and the, then the only means of war available to them is to wage a disinformation campaign. Since 1989, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there has been only one major global superpower economic and military power in the world. It's Canada. Just seeing if you guys are with me. Okay, just making sure. We live in this kind of unipolar world. And if, if that's the case, you know, recognizing that a straight-out land battle with the United States is not going to go very well, other nations, other nation states have taken to finding different ways, different vocabularies, different ways of waging war. It's what's now known as asymmetrical warfare. Nations and entities, they don't use regular troops, they don't meet on a battlefield, they come at it slant. And so you foment insurrection like Russia did in Crimea. You use irregular troops like 9-11. You you flood the airways with disinformation. You hack, you insert false narratives into the culture. You use media to destabilize. It's dirty war. It's not about changing maps. It's now about changing minds. In a recent book called War and 140 Characters, David Patrick Harakos argues that warfare is no longer primarily about land. It's not like the enemy is, is going to come in and take away territory. It's not like that movie, you know, Red Dawn, that terrified me when I was a kid. The war now is about controlling the narrative. Because even if you control the land, but you lose the narrative, you will then lose the land. But if you have control of the narrative, you'll get control of the land. And so as a way of kind of controlling the narrative, all over the world, nation states have been building troll farms, these digital centers that exist to influence and shape culture, largely through the spread of misinformation, the creation of fake social media profiles that can be inserted into the culture through media, through email, through through all kinds of ways, all as a way of kind of destabilizing and eroding trust and chipping away at the social cohesion of a nation. 
Wall Street Journal found, you know, they reported on this bipartisan session intelligence commission that found meddling with respect to vaccinations recently. But the most telling example of this was back in 2017 when a group out of Russia called the Internet Research Agency, sounds legit, right? But they orchestrated this months-long campaign where they created this, this uh, through social media, this this fake pro-Islamic group that they staffed with all kinds of fake profiles. And they simultaneously did the same thing with a fake white supremacist group. And the whole thing was kind of urging these two sides toward, and it culminated in this massive street protest in the city of Houston. And all they did was they create false narratives that played to what people already wanted to believe, that, that played on resentments that were already inside of them. And craftily kind of mixed those with these benign posts using coding and algorithms to create this kind of like emotional mapping to figure out when it is that you're going to be most susceptible to reading this kind of misinformation so they can strategically drop it into the media stream and you might come at it and it gets repeated in this case by 250,000 people. Something that was a lie, had no basis in reality. And it cost Russia $200 to sow that kind of discord. It's a way of waging war that doesn't use force to overtake or overthrow with the hard power of the military, but uses instead the soft powers of seduction and influence to shape hearts and minds. Patrick Caracos, who cut his journalistic teeth as a war correspondent, concludes, the world has not yet caught up with Russia. It still believes that words, propaganda, and partisan narratives are less dangerous than tanks. And I bring all that up because I, you know, I think it creates this really helpful word picture for us to think about how these, these powers and these spiritual forces are at work doing battle in the world. Paul is saying that these forces have been stripped of their power and so the only battlefield left is to wage a disinformation campaign in the human heart. Switch analogy for just a minute here. Um, a friend of mine showed me once that if you were to press the damper pedal on a piano and you were to sing into the, the, the top of an open grand piano with, with the, your foot on the damper button, that the, 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 the note that most closely came out of your voice would make the strings of that note on the piano begin to vibrate. And if you were to take your foot off, the, the sound would continue to resonate. But that's exactly the way that Paul and Jesus describe these spiritual forces at work. They're taking this kind of nascent energy, these, these desires, these concerns, these, these, these issues, these hang-ups that are already there and weaponizing them through the power of lies, to, to push them to the extreme, to leave no room for nuance, to create enemies out of flesh and blood. And so things in our culture like sexuality and race and greed, they are easy targets to wage a campaign because they cut to our deepest desires and they resonate with our deepest fears. It's the same story all throughout the pages of the Bible. It's the serpent in the garden. Did God really say not to eat of that fruit? 
It's Satan in the wilderness with Jesus. If you really are the Son of God, prove it. Sowing doubt, seeding division, pushing the, the needle compass of your heart degree by degree by degree away from the kingdom. And so I'm convinced that it's less about, you know, horror movie stuff, you know, spinning heads and little girls vomiting than it is about lies and distortions about the seductions that resonate in and throughout the chambers of our hearts. So what is the church to do in the midst of this disinformation campaign? Well, I imagine Paul sitting there in prison, chained next to this, this guard, and he looks over and sees the kit, and he's like, the Spirit you know, gives him this, this idea. And he's like, you got to suit up. But the battle, he says, and you'll notice that the weapons that are employed are almost entirely defensive. And I want you to hear me on this because I think the church gets it wrong when it starts to go on the offensive. The command here is to stand firm, not to take new ground. It is to stand firm. Because Jesus has already won the decisive battle. The only thing left to do is to stand Firm. So he finishes this letter with the Ephesians, giving them this kind of closing salvo of what he has been saying all along, to, to put away that old self with its old way of thinking, these old divisions rooted in the lies of ethnic hostility and class that work themselves out in patterns of intimidation and domination, the, the lies of the old morality with its confusion around sexuality and greed and revenge and self-preservation, and put on the new self with an identity rooted in and established in the king, clothed in truth and justice, peace and grace that has as its only weapon the story of God's grace in Jesus. And for us in the post-Christian context in which we live, a place that wants the, the kingdom without the king, this disinformation campaign is going to leave you questioning who you are. It's going to want you to find an identity based in something other than the king. And so our standing firm is about becoming a people whose hearts resonate with the truth. The way the Spirit works in us is we get so attuned to our identity as this beloved community rooted in Christ that we know the false chords from the true ones. And if we're going to follow Jesus in this cultural moment, that's going to take some work, right? You know, I, I, it's, we live in this space where the, the curation of our lives online is kind of an art form in and of itself, right? Um, social media is not just a place where we, we meet the world. It's a place that conditions us for all kinds of distortions about reality. It can lead us to imagine that the world is very different than it really is. So we have to ask ourselves, particularly in this polarized age, do the things that we come across resonate with the truth of the kingdom that God is bringing in Jesus, or do they resonate with the fears and the deepest vulnerabilities that I have? Are they working against us, seductively trying to resonate our hearts with those things that we are most vulnerable, causing us to want to wage war against flesh and blood? This fight that we're in is never about demonization first. It's about first and foremost... The fight to believe truth over lies. We hear lies every single day, and they, they do very little to affect you except for the times when you start to internalize them. 
when they start to shape the way that you see yourself and when you start to see the world around you. And so one of the things that we need to do, because you know, for most of us, the hard thing about it is we do not know when we have believed lies. Got so accustomed to us, they just you know are like the, the tapes running around in our head. So you learn the difference by hearing and encountering the story of God's grace in Scripture, by being part of a beloved community that looks like the story it's telling, and you learn it in prayer, in the Spirit, always, in every way. It's the one thing that underguards everything else because it does the things that we cannot do by our own effort. These are the things that help us ground our identity in Jesus and normalize the truth of Jesus that will set us free to allow us to live in reality and thrive. So as I close, I just want to go back to the beginning. I want to read a quote by C.S. Lewis from his classic, The Screwtape Letters. And he writes this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Well, I want to take a stab and say that in, out here in Decatur, we are not falling typically to the error of thinking that every evil that befalls us, that there is some devil hiding under a rock behind a corner. No, most of us disregard that layer of reality at all and are ready to host a party in the middle of a war zone. The rage and 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 anger and anxiety that we feel is because of, you know, we, you fill in the blank of there. We, we ignore the evil behind the evil, oblivious to the nature of reality. We get so caught up in the nature, in, in the, the narratives of our culture, some of which are awesome, some of which are deadly. And so the invitation, if you are, you know, skeptical about all of this, you're probably not alone. I mean, I think there's a little bit of a Dr. Strange in all of us. The invitation is just to suspend judgment for a while and consider that there is a layer behind the surface, that there is a disinformation campaign that feeds our anxieties and stokes our fears and creates hells on earth like in Rwanda. And Jesus is calling us as a beloved community to stand firm. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that we do not stand alone. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that we are captivated by the true story of your grace, that that story gives shape to how we live in this world with each other. God, we pray that you would give us the grace to stand firm as a community to Remember that we are not waging a war against flesh and blood. It's not our job to shoot the hostages. But to take this defensive position of 
being a community so enamored and captivated by your truth that we can spot the truth from the lies. We ask that you would give us the grace to do this. And pray this in the name of the one who has gone before us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.